What is the difference between the end of time and the time of the end? Well, as I mentioned last night, I grew up in the country. And for country people, when they begin to fatten the turkey for Christmas, that is the time of the end. When they cut its head off, then that's the end of time. I hope this helps you as we launch into tonight's presentation, The Time of the End. Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the End of Time series. We're in for a real treat tonight, as we've just been had a little bit of a taste of that just now. But I want to let you know that we are coming to you live from the east coast of Australia. And the good news about that is you can, if you're watching right now, you can actually interact with us live on this program. If you're watching on our YouTube channel or on our Facebook page, please make the most of the comments section there because we have moderators fielding your questions and comments so that I can feed them to Lyle after he presents. We're so excited that you join us night by night and it's been great to connect with you. Some of you have had the opportunity to speak with on the phone and so we encourage you to continue to share this series with others. It's not too late to join and let's sit back now as Lyle presents on the time of the end. Nation will rise against nation. There will be droughts, pandemics, and earthquakes. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption is near. Belteshazzar was the greatest grand vizier the world has ever seen. Here in the West, we would call him a Prime Minister rather than the Middle Eastern term Grand Vizier. But he was a man who served under four world emperors, spanning two world empires. He lived the equivalent of two lifetimes in his day, making it into his 90s in an era when men died in their 40s. Not only that, not only that but we find him in his 80s as a vibrant figure still in public office. Most importantly, Belteshazzar never wavered in his allegiance to God. He was a man who was born to a noble family of a micronation before that nation was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar II and his entire population deported. As a teenager, he became a slave trophy of war, most likely lost his manhood before a lightning rise to power at the head of Nebuchadnezzar's cabinet. Of course, we know Belteshazzar by his more common Hebrew name of Daniel. Not only was he an unparalleled statesman, but he was one of the few truly apocalyptic prophecies of the Bible. Most prophets make a few end-time prophecies, but Daniel, along with John, received visions from God that were exclusively focused on the end of time. We find Daniel in his later years serving under Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede should not be confused with his famous relative who also features prominently in scripture, Darius the Great. Darius the Great was an Archimedes Persian and the great financial architect of the Persian Empire. Darius the Mede, on the other hand, was a Median prince and uncle to Cyrus the Great. Originally, Persia was a minor state within the Median Empire formed by Cyraxes the Mede, who created his empire by forming an alliance with the Babylonians, defeating the Assyrians. Cyraxes had cemented the alliance by marrying his daughter Amatus to Nebuchadnezzar. 
Amadeus' brother Astyages went on to form an alliance with Persia by marrying one of his daughters, Mandane, to the Persian king Cambyses. Their child was Cyrus the Great, who went on to conquer Babylon and the known world. Darius the Mede, it seems, was the brother of Mandane. Now, when Cyrus conquered Babylon, the city was considered to be an impregnable fortress with the greatest defences of any metropolis in the world. The only city with comparable defences, Constantinople, came centuries later. And those defences held for 1,100 years against successive attacks by Goths, Avars, Huns, Bulgarians, Saracens, Russians, Ottomans, etc., only being finally breached with the invention of gunpowder and the use of the largest guns ever built, even to this day. With the Euphrates running right through the middle of the city of Babylon, it could withstand a siege seemingly for eternity. A frontal attack on the double walls or gates outside the city would be suicide, and even if an army could devise some means of coming down the river on rafts or boats, they'd be sunk and drowned by the defenders on the walls that lined the riverbanks inside the city itself. Any survivors who did make it to shore would be massacred where they stood. But some hundred years previously, Isaiah had prophesied that Babylon would be conquered when those gates would be left open and that the king of Babylon would be paralyzed with fear. Babylon had presented Cyrus with the greatest challenge of his military career. How do you take the largest city with the most formidable fortifications that had existed in three and a half thousand years? A city that even after it was conquered and began to decline would still not be surpassed until Zaidu in China outgrew it 200 years later. Cyrus might be able to float a few regiments down the river, but what if he could get his whole army inside? Now that would offer some possibilities. A bold and ambitious plan began to form in his mind, spurred on by an event that had occurred as he'd been leading his armies towards Babylon. While crossing the river, his favourite horse had been drowned by the river. So why not attack the river? Cyrus set his men to work upstream of Babylon, digging an enormous channel entirely by hand with the purpose of diverting one of the greatest rivers in the world. This was no small task. But little by little, the massive channel began to form. Cyrus waited until a special night when he knew the Babylonians would be celebrating one of their most important religious festivals. And then he cut through into the channel, diverting the entire river. The bulk of Cyrus's army was waiting in full battle dress beside the Euphrates where it flowed under the walls of Babylon. Must have been quite a sight to see the level of the river suddenly begin to dramatically drop. We don't know if any of the Babylonians inside the city noticed what was happening during their celebrations. But as soon as the water reached about chest height, Cyrus marched his entire army into the riverbed and straight into the unsuspecting city. Of course, in normal circumstances, the walls either side of the river would have simply trapped his army in a kill box. But Cyrus had gambled on the Babylonians being unprepared to defend those walls due to the distraction created by the festival that was taking place. Imagine Cyrus's surprise when he found the walls were not just unguarded, but as Isaiah had prophesied, the internal gates left wide open. 
His army poured through the portals into either side of the city, and within the hour, the greatest city in the world had fallen without a fight. Belshazzar, not Belteshazzar, the son of the Babylonian king Nabonidus, had been in charge of the city and was killed in his palace while fighting the Persians. Nabonidus was not present and had withdrawn to the south with the bulk of the Babylonian army. Babylon belonged to Cyrus, but Nabonidus was a very real threat. And so leaving his uncle, Darius the Mede, in charge, he followed Nabonidus further south, eventually convincingly defeating him, killing him before moving on to other conquests. Meanwhile, Darius the Mede reigned in Babylon and enacting one of the most unusual Persian policies of the time made the previous enemy prime minister his prime minister. So you can only imagine how the Medes and the Persians, who had expended so much energy uh, taking the kingdom, felt at being overlooked for this important position. They began a concerted campaign to dethrone Daniel at all costs, leaving no stone unturned. The Bible says, So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. That's Daniel chapter 6 and verse 4. Clearly, there were no skeletons in Daniel's closet. And having failed, they concluded that the only way they would ever defeat this guy would be in relation to his religion. And so they set a trap. They noticed that Daniel went to his house three times a day, opened his window and prayed while facing toward the land of Judah. The princes went to Darius the Mede and said, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, the king Darius signed the written decree. That's Daniel 6, 6 to 9. Now, we would wonder why Daniel was in the habit of praying three times a day toward Jerusalem. But the answer is simple. Daniel was a keen student of the scriptures and he knew the prayer that Solomon had prayed over the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. As a part of that prayer, Solomon had said, When your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they, and they take them captive to a land far or near. When they come to themselves in the land where they have been carried captive and repent and make supplication, saying, we have sinned, we have done wrong and have committed wickedness and return to you with all their heart in the land of their captivity and pray toward their land and toward the city and toward the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. You'll find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 36 to 39. Daniel was obeying this command and had dedicated his life to seeing it fulfilled. A copy of the prayer that he prayed from his window is recorded for us in Daniel 9. And it would be great homework for you to read it after this presentation. Not only was Daniel familiar with the prayer of Solomon, but he tells us that he discovered the prophecy of Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel who had moved to Egypt to minister to the Jewish community of mercenaries on Elephantine Island. Somehow, a copy of his prophecy had made it all the way to Babylon, where the Bible says that Daniel consumed it with great interest, eventually discovering this prophecy. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's Jeremiah 25 verse 11. This would have been confusing for Daniel and would have only increased his desire to pray. You see, it clashed with something he had seen in an earlier vision. We find that vision recorded in chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. But before we go there, we must finish the story of what happened to Daniel. With the edict going out to worship Darius the Mede and the death penalty decreed, Daniel could have retreated within his home to pray. But what would that have said about God, the God that he served? For his entire life, he had proclaimed that the God of Judah, Yahweh, was the only true and living God. If Daniel had retreated inside, his actions would have loudly proclaimed that Darius was more powerful than Yahweh. This Daniel would not do. When his actions were reported to Darius, the king was distraught. He realized he'd been trapped. Daniel was an invaluable asset to his administration. He was a man who had a wealth of experience and had probably run the entire empire himself during Nebuchadnezzar's seven-year absence. He was someone that the Babylonians knew and respected and trusted. He knew the culture of the city and its people and spoke their language. He could keep the city peaceful for Darius's fledgling administration as he understood the unique needs of the local citizens. On top of that, Darius himself had become a personal friend of this wise old sage and depended heavily upon him. The Bible says that Darius worked the entire day to find a legal loophole by which he could release Daniel. But it was not to be found. The legislation had been crafted by the Persians' finest lawyers and it was watertight. In a kind of James Bond bad guy style of execution, Daniel was dropped into a cave full of hungry lions. These lions were kept by Darius as a novel way of dispatching his enemies and were typically not well fed to keep them hungry. That night, Darius did not sleep. He had encountered the power of Yahweh through Daniel and he had no doubt heard the legends of this God's power. There must have been a sneaking suspicion somewhere in his mind that Yahweh could actually be more powerful than the hungry lions he kept. The next morning, Darius hurried to the cave and called down into it. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me. One can only imagine the consternation of the Persian princes and one wonders how they had thought this would go well for them in the first place. Even if Daniel had been eaten, did they really think that in a society where kings killed their subjects on a whim, that forcing their monarch to kill his best friend would end well for them? But jealousy is one of the most evil and blinding sins in existence. And these men had become incapable of seeing their fate. At the command of Darius, the other princes and their families were thrown into the cave where the lions immediately devoured them. Darius then released a proclamation in favour of the Jewish God. But we must get back to the reason that Daniel was praying so earnestly for the restoration of Jerusalem and its temple. 
Daniel had received a vision that was all about the time of the end and the cleansing of God's temple. This vision was associated with a time prophecy and that time prophecy clashed with a 70-year time prophecy given to Jeremiah. Trying to figure this puzzle out had stressed him so much it had made him sick. Would it happen at the end of the 70 years? Or would it take 2,300 years? Or maybe just 6.3 years? And how did it it apply to the time of the end? Thankfully, we have the blessing of hindsight, and so in light of fulfilled prophecy in the history of the past, we will now begin to unravel the mystery that was plaguing Daniel and driving him to his knees. Wow, Lyle, what a setup for tonight. That was an incredible recount of history. I'm so glad the, the live stream came back. We yes, really well, lost we, lost, we lost you guys there for a little while. We had people saying, can you go back to the part of this? We were all caught up in the story. So look, uh, we If we missed a little bit, I'm sorry, but hopefully it'll be all there somewhere. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it will be. We want our listeners to know, and also we want to welcome those listening on Faith FM Radio, that with each presentation in this series, there is also connected a free offer. And tonight's one is this right here. It's called Rebuilding Israel's Temple Part 1. If you'd like to get your hands on this copy for yourself, please text the keyword temple to the number on your screen or for those of you on radio to 0428-833-386. And also if you want to chat to anyone about what Lyle's presented tonight, text the word chat to the same number and we would love to connect with you. And I might just add, if I can for a moment, that this particular Bible study that we're giving away this evening, this booklet we're giving away this evening, is a series of 20 that I've written on Bible prophecy. And if you go to the end.digital website, then you will be able to click on a link where you can order the entire set entirely for free and do it as a course. Wow. Yeah. That was a plug worth giving, Lyle. So I guess at this point, I have a big question for you. Right. And that is, you've set up this prophecy. So yes. where do we find this prophecy that Daniel was so stressed about that you were talking okay. about? Okay, this is one of the most exciting prophecies in the Bible. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 8 okay. and uh, let's see what... God has to say for us right here. Daniel at chapter 8 is where it's at. And this is actually the longest time prophecy in the Bible. It gives a bit of, uh, there's a bit of, you know, background that we need to, you know, a foundation, so to speak, that we need to look at first. So, Sharissa, why don't you read for us uh, Daniel chapter 8 and we'll look at verses 1 through 4. Sure. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. I saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. Okay. So here we have a ram with kind of two unusual horns. I've never seen horns growing. You know, I've seen horns, you know, and I've had sheep before and the horns grow, but I've never seen them grow. He sees them, you know, coming out of the head of this ram. And one's higher than the other. One's higher than the other. So what is weird about these, like why are these odd horns? Okay, so first of all, we need to remind ourselves uh, something from about Bible prophecy. Because here we are introduced to the symbol of an animal. Mm -hmm. And we need to find out what do animals symbolize in Bible prophecy. I'm going to give you a couple of verses real quick. Uh, If we go back to chapter 7 and verse 17, the Bible says, These great beasts or animals which are four are four kingdoms which shall arise out of the earth. 
And so we know the Bible tells us that an animal or a beast in Bible prophecy is symbolic of a kingdom. So we need to find out which kingdom is symbolized by this ram that has two horns. Now, the great thing, Sharissa, is that you don't have to guess. I don't? You don't have so to where guess. where do I find the answer? <laughs> that you find the answer right here in the chapter. Daniel 8 is divided into two parts. The first half is the prophecy. The second half, Gabriel comes and explains the prophecy, which he then finishes in chapter 9. We'll talk about that tomorrow night. But tomorrow night? Yes. Tomorrow night, yes. Yes, tomorrow night, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so we'll talk about that tomorrow night. But if you go to, over to verse 20, what does it say in verse 20? All right, here it says, The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Nice and simple. Nice and simple, the kings of Media and Persia. And of course, they're both high. Mm-hmm. One comes up higher and it comes up last. Initially, the Medes held the upper hand and then the Persians took over and it became the Persian Empire. So what happens next? Ah, okay. Well, let's go back to chapter 8 and find out. And why don't you read for us verse 5 to 8? Suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram and ran at him with furious power and broke his horns, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. Okay, so here we've got another, another animal, another beast. There's going to be another nation, right? Yeah, well, who is the goat? Okay, so once again, if you look at the explanation of the prophecy, why don't you read for us verse 21? All right. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Okay, if you knew your history, you wouldn't actually have to read that because we all know from history that it was Alexander the Great who conquered the Persian Empire. Okay, well, yeah. Not everybody... No, I mean, I, I just <laughs> love history, like so you, I just... Lyle. I, I, <laughs> Lyle knows a lot of stuff. I love about history. history. It's just, okay, it's... well, this is very interesting for all of us, I'm uh-huh. sure. But, um, so you've got Medo-Persia and then you've yep. got Greece. Yep, two beasts uh-huh. and yes. horns. And notice that the Bible says, watch this, the Bible says that the, uh, that the Persian Empire becomes great. Mm-hmm. Then it says that the Greek Empire becomes very great. That's important because very great is greater than great, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's great. Now, yes. now it says, <laughs> so what, um, what about this broken horn? Ah, okay, so the great horn gets broken off. Okay. All right, very good. Let's go to, uh, where were we, verse 8? Back yes. in verse 8, I think it was. Yep. Yes. I haven't read that yet. but. All right, let's read verse 8. Okay. When he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. Okay. Now, that's interesting it is. because, first of all, the Bible says that when he was great, at the height of his power, the great horn was broken off. And typically we know from history that nations are conquered when they become weak. The Bible says, no, this one would be conquered at the height of its power. That's exactly what happened with the Greek empire. Alexander came to power. He ruled the world at the height of his power. He died and the empire collapsed. And guess how many kingdoms it collapsed into? Four. Four. Four horns right here. Why don't you read for us verse 22? Verse 22 of Daniel chapter 8. Yes. The Bible says, As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Okay. There you go. And we know that those kingdoms are from history, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, they were four of 
Alexander's generals who divided the empire up between themselves. Okay, so we see that was fulfilled. Yes, all is fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. We're building a foundation here and this is what God is doing. God is giving us a whole bunch of historically verifiable prophecy on which we can build a foundation. All right, now I've read this chapter before and yes. there's a little horn that comes up. There is a little and horn. I want to know who is that little horn. All right, let's, let's read about it. Uh, I think you'll find that one in verse 9. Okay, so Daniel 8 verse 9, And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Mm-hmm. So, like I'm guessing, I could take a good guess at who okay. this could be. Yeah, go for it. Like, I know a little bit about history, uh-huh. but there's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes yes. who made the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem before the time of Jesus. And I'm just thinking maybe he could be this little horn. And there's bound to be somebody on YouTube who's going to be able to, who's going to be out there to comment on Antiochus Epiphanes, who is generally known to people as Antiochus who? Um, <laughs> but anyway, Antiochus Epiphanes was a minor Seleucid uh, general, minor Seleucid king, and he did desecrate the temple. Uh, before the time of Jesus. However, he is not the fulfillment of this little horn. Okay. Not if you believe in Jesus. Okay. Because he desecrated the temple before the time of Jesus. And when Jesus came, he said that the abomination of desolation had not yet come. So you kind of got two choices here. You can believe in a theologian who says this is Antiochus Epiphanes or you can believe in Jesus Christ. You can't have both. Mm -hmm. Which one are you going to choose? I choose Jesus. In fact, let me read that for you. That's in Matthew chapter 24. I'll just read it very quickly. Matthew chapter 24. And normally I don't talk about this guy, but hey, we've got YouTube and Facebook and everybody's asking questions. We're getting some great questions out there. I just know someone's going to post up on this, so let's just answer it here. Uh, The Bible says in Matthew 24 and verse 15, here's the first word is the key word, when Jesus is speaking. It's at the end of his ministry and he says when, in other words, future tense, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Whoever reads, let him understand, then let those which are in Judea flee into the mountains, etc. The abomination of desolation had not come in Jesus' time and therefore this cannot be Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, by the way, well, actually, let's, let's read what it says here. Back in Daniel chapter 8, And verse 9, it says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn which grew exceedingly great. Did you catch that? The ram was great. The goat was very great. This one is exceedingly great. So you have to have a nation, an empire, greater than the Greek empire here. Yes. That's what the Bible demands. Not only that, but when you read the verse and you read it, the Bible says in verse 8, that the great horn was broken off and for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven and out of one of them, out of one of which? One of the the four. four winds of heaven, the four points of the compass, mm-hmm. came forth a little horn. The grammatical antecedent right there is the winds, not the horns. And Rome arose out of one of the four points of the compass. All right, Lyle. So I was wrong. Now, that's right. <laughs> well, I think you were playing devil's advocate okay, there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah you were. But uh, this time prophecy, where is it? Okay, so it's a little bit further down. We're going to skip over the next few verses. They go on and they talk about the Antichrist and so forth. Let's go down to verse 13 and 14 because this is the most exciting part of the whole prophecy. 
All right. The Bible says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Okay, interesting prophecy here. Yes. all about the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary is another term that refers to either the temple or the tabernacle, the sanctuary. They're all the same thing, okay? This is the place of worship for the Jewish nation. And there's a prophecy here, 2,300 days, and then it's going to be cleansed. Now, that's a rather long period of time, and this is the part of the prophecy that kind of stresses Daniel out. Well, actually, it really stresses him out. Uh, how, how long actually is this time prophecy right here, Sharissa? There's an interesting passage that I want you to read. And uh, let's look at what it says. Um, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6. All right. It's going to help us to understand this. Sure. The Bible says here, You shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Okay. So this is interesting. A day for a year. This is a principle you're going to find from one end of the Bible to the other. A day symbolizing a year. So if a day symbolizes a year and you've got 2300 days, that's a rather long period of time, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Okay, so now our next question is this. When does this 2300 days apply to? Does it apply to the distant past? Or is it spanning from the distant past into modern history. All right, Lyle, we're going to have to. Oh, we're about to have the best part of the best part of the prophecy is right. It is right here. We are there. We're We're about to read it. Yeah. Okay. Should we quickly take a pause? Oh, you can. I will let you. Yeah. (laughs) Because everybody needs to know this. If you want more information on tonight's topic, please text in the word temple to the to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. Our Faith FM listeners can also obtain it by this texting the word temple to that number. We just need to check to make sure we haven't missed anybody's questions. So um, just looking here, and there's some good questions and comments. And those of you watching on YouTube and Facebook, please send in your questions for Lyle. Um, Someone's already said something here, which is quite nice, Lyle. They said, Lyle makes prophecy simple. Oh, praise God. Amen. Praise God. All right. So here's a question for you. Will... We ever see people from other worlds before Jesus comes again. And this is from Robin in Belmont. Welcome, Robin. Okay, there is nothing to indicate that uh, we will see, the Bible does not indicate in anywhere that we will see people from other worlds before the return of Jesus Christ. That's the simple answer right there. And we do see from time to time angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bible says that, you know, that's a real thing, that angels are ministering spirits who... Uh, who ministered to us, you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 1. And you'll find that angels often appear in the form of human beings. We will also, from time to time, human beings have been known to see evil angels or demons in various forms. And, of course, angels are able to take various different forms. And so we will see angels, beings from other worlds. There's no indication of that at all. Okay. Very good. Uh, This one is from Obi on Facebook. Welcome. Could we apply the day for a year interpretation to the days of creation? No. The days of what you've got to look for in the Bible is when is the Bible speaking symbolically, and when is the Bible speaking historically. When the Bible is speaking historically, you don't use a day for a year principle. 
When the Bible is speaking symbolically, then you do. And in this passage right here, when you talk about a ram that has two horns, you can see the horns growing. You talk about a goat that has one horn, it gets broken off and four grow up. And then another one comes out, you know, uh, from one of the four points of the compass. This is very, very clearly symbolic language. And so we know to use the day for your principle. When the Bible speaks historically, then, you know, we look at the Ten Commandments where the Bible says, for in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. That's a historical fact. That is not symbolic. All right. Very good. And this one is the last one we'll take in this segment. This is from Tari, also a Facebook viewer. Welcome. She says, and I think she has a child writing in on her behalf. My mum is asking. Okay. How many more worlds are there? We were talking about this last time. I wish I knew. <laughs> okay. Is there peace in all those worlds? Will we combine with those worlds when Jesus comes again? Okay, so in our Milky Way, I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm just doing this from memory, there are about 200 billion suns. Wow. And so if each of those suns have as many planets as our sun does, that could be a lot of worlds. We don't know. It's only in recent times that we've been able to discover the existence of other uh, worlds or planets, we call them, in other solar systems. We know that there is a tremendous amount of them out there. We just don't know how many. Okay. Very good. All right. We can get back to the... um... All right. Get back to our Bible study. Oh, yes. yes. We're we're just about to tell us when it all happens. Yes. The 2,300 days. Okay, and this, is, and this is just in case you're still a little bit worried about, okay, do we apply the day for your principle here or not? Okay, we're going to look at some context. Let's look at uh, verses, what is it, 16, 15, uh, down through here, um, 15 to, say, 19 in that passage there. All right. Here the Bible says in Daniel 8, When I, Daniel, was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end, for at the appointed time the end shall be. Now we come to what the prophecy is actually all about. It's all about the time of the end. And remember at the very beginning, we talked about the difference between the time of the end or the period of the end and the end of time. The end of time is when Jesus comes back and time ceases to have relevance. But there's a period in the lead up to that in which there's going to be a whole bunch of signs to tell us that Jesus is coming back. And this prophecy points to that period right there, the time of the end. Okay, so we now know that this prophecy has to be day for a year, because the only way you can get from Daniel's time down to our time into the modern era is by taking this as day for your principle, 2,300 days, 2,300 years from the time of Daniel is going to land us in modern history. Wow. Yes. Okay, so this is becoming very close. Very to relevant. And very, relevant. very, very relevant. This is, this is where it gets so exciting. All right, let's just check, make sure anyone has any questions at this point. Um, There is one here, and I'm just going to share it with you. So this is from Philip, who's joining us from Facebook. I've seen his name here a couple of nights. Good to have you regularly, Philip. Is the Earth only 6,000 years old? Okay, the Earth is around about 6,000 years old. We don't know exactly. Um, 
But the best we can do with Bible chronologies, and this is one of the reasons why I believe that the chronologies are written in the way that they are, because I've got to admit the very first time I read the Bible, you know, I started to really enjoy it in Genesis until I hit the, you know, this person gave birth to this person, gave birth to this person. This person was this age when they gave birth to this person. And then they lived this many years and the total number of years they lived was it. And I was like, what is going on here? But basically what God is doing is he's giving us the age of of the earth and he's giving us a chronology by which we can you know date down our time and the earth is around about six thousand years old all right this one is from youtube and it's got a code for the name so i won't say it's it's like a number but uh, good to have you and this is a good question when the three angels of revelation bring their message to earth will we be able to discern them as angels Ooh, now there's a good question. Angels in the Bible, and particularly in prophecy, are symbolic of messengers. In fact, the word angel, angelos, is a Greek word, and it simply means messenger. And so usually in the Bible, the word angelos refers to a heavenly messenger. There are occasions when it refers to a human being as a messenger. Paul is referred to as an angelos. Uh, David is referred to as an angel. Jesus, who was the greatest messenger of all, is on occasions referred to as an angel in the Bible. God himself is referred to as an angel because he is a messenger. And so when these three angels come with their messages, we will know because of the message that they carry. So you need to look for that message. That's an end time message. It's a message, the everlasting gospel. The Bible describes it, you know, Revelation 14, verse verse 6. I saw three angels fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. You know, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Babylon is fallen, etc. This is the everlasting gospel. That goes to the world just before Jesus comes back. And when you hear that message, you are hearing the message of the three angels. Okay. Lyle, did you write about the three angels' messages in this series? I did. I did. So if you want to know about the three angels' messages in detail, you need to do the course. So we'll just give another plug. If you want to know more about the three angels' messages, more about tonight's subject even, this is a course that Lyle wrote. Text the word TEMPLE to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. And either the one-off tonight or the whole series, you can get the whole series on the website, the end.digital website, either of those, it's entirely free. It's not going to cost you a cent. Great. Uh, here's one from Sparrow, and she's asking, how many guardian angels do we have appointed to us? The Bible says, and, you know, it's, it's not, I guess, super clear in relationship to this, but this is uh, Matthew chapter 18. Hmm, where is this verse? It was right here in front of me, and now I can't see it. Why can't I see it? Kind of, how does it sound? Okay, basically the Bible says, um, but the Bible says that when, you know, talking about the children who are here on this earth, the Bible says that their angels always uh, see the the face of the Father who is in heaven. Mm. And so the Bible uses the very personal term there, their angels. Their angels always, you know, see the Father in heaven. And so the indication is there that there is an angel who is assigned to each one of us. Beautiful. Yeah, we don't need more than one. They're more. <laughs> they're, they're very powerful. That's right. They're very powerful. All right. Uh, here's another one. Then we'll go back to our Bible study. This has come fresh 
This is real fresh from Vladimir watching us on Facebook. And he's asking, how do we know when the prophecy timeline begins? Isn't the Antichrist actually still to come in the future out of Israel? Oh, really good question. So how do we know when the prophecy timeline begins? So this is what you're going to find in Daniel chapter 8. There is a prophecy followed by an explanation. We're going to go back to it in just a moment. There's a prophecy followed by an explanation. The explanation is going to tell you exactly who the ram is, exactly who the two horns are, exactly who the goat is, exactly who the great horn is, exactly who the four horns are, exactly who the little horn is, exactly how long the prophecy is, exactly what happens at the end of the prophecy. And it's going to leave one detail out. It's kind of like a massive jigsaw puzzle and you can start putting it all together. Always good fun to put a jigsaw puzzle together and it's good fun to put Daniel chapter 8 together. You put all the jigsaw puzzle together and there's one piece missing. Or it's a little bit like when your you know, favourite best friend gives you a recipe, like, yeah, here, have my recipe, and leaves out their favourite ingredient. The one thing that is missing from the prophecy is the start date. And without a start date, a time prophecy is useless. Now, I was going to do this at the end of the program. I'm going to do it now. Okay. You see, the good news is that Gabriel comes back in chapter 9 and gives the start date. So we know when to start it from. The bad news is that if you want to find out, you're going to have to, well, it's not bad news, it's good news as well. You're going to have to join us again tomorrow night because this is a two-part series within the series. Really good answer there, Lyle. <laughs> good plug for tomorrow too. And I was going to say, let's go back to the Bible study, but someone yep. just got in one really relevant okay. question to what yeah, we're yep. talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from David on Facebook. Are there fallen angels other than Lucifer? Yes. Simple answer to that one is yes. Okay. Uh, and you can read that in uh, Revelation chapter 12. Great. All right, what is this cleansing of the sanctuary then? Okay, so the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, unto 2,300 years, days, symbolizing years, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, we know that that 2,300 years, beginning from the time of Daniel, we haven't established a start date yet. But the Bible does give one. That's tomorrow night's subject. But we know that's going to land us somewhere in modern history. Mm Mm-hmm. So we need to understand what the cleansing of the sanctuary is. Now, here's, here, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. The Bible says that he gets to the end of this prophecy. He can't understand it, even though Gabriel has explained every last detail. The reason he can't understand it is because he hasn't been given the start date. But he says that it made him sick. So he wants to see the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. Is that going to be 2,300 years from now? That would be really discouraging. Or are you going to have the rise of the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Antichrist? Is all of those great empires and persecuting powers, that all going to take place in like six and a half years? That would be devastating as well. And then he comes across, across the prophecy of Jeremiah, which says 70 years. So what's going on? This is why Daniel's praying so hard. He's like, I need to know. And this is why Gabriel comes back in chapter 9 to give him the answer. Uh, Where were we? The cleansing of the sanctuary. We need to understand about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Okay. So, first of all, the book of Daniel has four prophecies, and they all repeat each other. You've got Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, Daniel 10 through 12. They all follow the same sequence, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, through to the second coming. All of them add in some extra detail. 
When you go through Daniel chapter 7, it goes Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then it goes Antichrist, extra detail, and then it goes judgment. You come to chapter 8, it leaves out Babylon. Babylon's gone and done with. It goes Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then it goes Antichrist, same as chapter 7, it's paralleling chapter 7, and then it goes judgment. Sorry, not judgment, cleansing of the sanctuary. So cleansing of the sanctuary in chapter 8 is what parallels judgment in chapter 7. So maybe there's a relationship between the two. I'll give you a couple more clues. All right. Uh, The cleansing of the sanctuary has a number of different names. It's called the cleansing of the sanctuary. It's called the Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. And many Jews call it the Day of Judgment. There's another clue. Starting to sound like judgment right here. Then the Bible uses some very unique language. And whenever you find unique language, it should always prick your ears and make them stand up because it's probably going to point you to another place in the Bible where you're going to find very similar language. Let me read it to you from Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, and you're going to hear, this is Gabriel speaking. He is speaking to Daniel about the prophecies, giving his explanation. And right here, uh, he says, I will make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation for at the time appointed the end shall be. God's made an appointment for something and in Acts chapter 7 is the other place in the Bible where you find the same language where it says in Acts 17 31 because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Something to do with the judgment. Okay. So, oh, (laughs) we're going to have to go fast. But we have time. All right, so here we go. Hold on to your seats, guys. In the sanctuary service, when a person sinned, they brought a lamb. They confessed their sins over the head of the lamb. Symbolically, the sin was transferred from them to the lamb. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So what has to happen? The lamb has to die. They had to kill the lamb themselves. The blood would be collected in a bowl and taken into the first room of the temple the sanctuary, be sprinkled on the vial that is between the first room and the second room, the holy place it's called. Mm-hmm. It's taken into the holy place and the blood is sprinkled there. And so the sin, the sin symbolically is being transferred from the sinner to the lamb, to the blood, to the temple. We all follow so far? Yes. So then the sinner goes away, he's got free. That sin will never, ever have any relevance to him ever again. He leaves it behind in the temple in the holy place. All right, that's a fairly simple procedure. Then you come to once a year, they would cleanse that sanctuary. You see, they'd get blood in there and it wouldn't be very nice. And blood, you know, the stench of that blood is a stench of the, of the sins that we commit. And there was an altar of incense there that burnt with a white smoke. And that incense would cover the stench of the sins. And that incense, that white, a symbol of the righteousness and purity of Christ covering the stench of our sins. There's great symbolism right here. The lamb that had done nothing wrong. Jesus said, you know, John the Baptist said, Jesus is the lamb of God. Mm -hmm. The innocent lamb who dies on our behalf um, is all symbolic. Everything there is symbolic of what Jesus would do. But in Leviticus chapter 16, why don't you read for us verse uh, 7 and 9. This happened once a year. Okay. It says, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Okay, so 
Casting lots is a little bit like flipping a coin, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. You've got two goats. One's going to be the Lord's goat. One's going to be Satan's. Scapegoat, another word for Satan's goat. So one goat for God, one goat for Satan. Which one's going to die? The one for the Lord. Yes. Most people say, oh, Satan's goat. Let's kill him. No, it's the Lord's goat because Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for us. Okay. Then now what, what would happen with this, with this goat? Go to uh, verse 15 and 16. The Bible says, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. Or cleansing. Okay, this is really simple. Let me, ah, let me show you how this cleansing. works. Atonement is cleansing. Yes. So here's what you've got all year long. As the Jewish people are making their sacrifices, the sins are being transferred from them to the holy place. They walk away clean. The sins are all building up in the holy place. Once a year, they take blood into the most holy place and all of the sins that are here in the holy place, they're cleansed. They're wiped out. There's no record they've ever happened. Mm, Come the Day of Atonement, that's what happens. So imagine you have two individuals this guy right here, as the, day goes, as the year goes by, his sins all end up in the holy place. When the Day of Atonement comes, how many sins does this guy have? None. None. There's no record anywhere that he's ever done anything wrong. That's pretty good news, right? Mm -hmm. This guy over here, he's done some sins as well. Kind of like those sins. Refused to take them to the sanctuary. The Day of Atonement comes. Where are his sins? Still with him. They're still with him. And so the Day of Atonement, very simply divided between those who had confessed their sins and those who had not confessed their sins, which is a really simple way of describing the righteous with their sins forgiven and the wicked with their sins not forgiven. And this is why it's called a day of judgment. Wow, Lyle. So that's just totally opened up this amazing time prophecy for us tonight. We're talking about a, a time of judgment that it's Absolutely. To. Okay. Absolutely. Now, here's, here's something that's even more interesting. And we touched on this several nights ago. Some people picked up on it and they sent some messages through on Facebook and on YouTube about it. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Are you saying that the judgment begins before Jesus comes back? Well, don't blame me. I didn't write the Bible. Let me read you what the Bible says. Uh, there's a great passage here in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 where it says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back, the judgment has already taken place because he brings his rewards with him. You don't hand out rewards you know, and then sit down and find out, oh, do we, should we have given this person a reward or should this person be condemned? No. You do that after judgment has taken place. But if we know when the judgment begins, then we certainly know that we are in the time of the end, not the end of time. The Bible will never give you that date. But the Bible will give you when the time of the end is. Mm. That's really interesting because once the judgment begins, it's a little bit like a pregnancy. You know, when, when labor begins, you are on a one-way path. You can't just decide to switch it off right now and like, oh, I'll have this baby next week. No, nope. you were on a one-way path through pain to a very blessed experience. 
It's a good illustration there, Lyle. Look, time has flown on us tonight, as it, it always does. Yes. We are still at the end, in the end of time series, in the time of the end right now. Uh-huh. And everybody wants to know, when does the time of the end begin? <laughs> yes, and so you're going to have to come back tomorrow. Lyle's already given a good plug. Another extra plug for this. This is going to help you understand even more about tonight's presentation. And so if you'd like to get your free copy on this booklet, Rebuilding Israel's Temple Part 1. Simply text the word TEMPLE to the number on your screen, 0428-833-386. Or if you'd like to chat with us or someone about this topic, maybe you have some questions, please text the word CHAT to the same number and we will look forward to connecting with you. Lyle, some final thoughts on tonight. When the Hebrews brought a sacrifice, they had to go and select the very best lamb that they had. And they would go and select that lamb by calling it by name. And the reason that it would come when you called it by name was because they had raised it by hand and it was a pet. Now, we don't really have those kinds of pet sheep for the most part. I had one when I was a kid, but most people don't. But we don't really have those kind of pets today. We have other kinds of pets. And then they would lead that pet through the camp or through the city of Jerusalem towards the temple while everybody looked on and like, oh, you know, I wonder what that person did symbolizing that we can't hide our sin. But then they would enter the sanctuary. And when they entered the sanctuary, they would be surrounded by a wall, a white wall. And that white wall is a symbol of the righteousness of Christ. Now, nobody can see that they are a sinner. Why? Because they are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then they'd have to take the life of that lamb and hold it while it died. Think about how horrific that would be for you if you had to take the life of your pet. The symbolism here was graphic. And the symbolism was that sin causes death. And not just ordinary death, sin caused the death of the Son of God. We take sin ever so lightly. But sin comes, sin has created an infinite cost. And it's created, it's revealed to us infinite love, the love of Jesus Christ. You see, that lamb did nothing to deserve what happened to it. And Jesus did nothing to deserve dying on Calvary. But why did Jesus die there? The answer is ever so simple. He saw you. And when he saw you, He could not bear the thought of spending eternity without you. That's how valuable you are to God. That is how valuable you as an individual are to Jesus Christ. You can always tell the value of an object by what somebody is prepared to pay for it. And there is no greater price than the life of God himself. Friends, Jesus offers to you the free gift. He comes to you and he says, look, I want to speak your sins into non-existence. He says, I will forget your sins. Well, you know, we might say we can forget something and we may forget it or not. But when God does something, it actually happens. He wants to cleanse them, wipe them out and make them so that they have never existed before. This is the good news 
of the cleansing of the sanctuary. This is what the judgment is all about. It's all about the cleansing of your sins and my sins. So there's no record anywhere in the universe. And Jesus accomplished that by dying on Calvary as our sacrifice. This evening, he offers to you the opportunity of accepting that sacrifice and inviting you, inviting you to let him come into your heart. Won't you make that decision this evening? Won't you give your life to Jesus Christ right now? If you don't know how, give us a call, 0428-833-386. We would love to talk to you. Or send us a a message and simply just text in chat. Jesus offers you salvation and an eternity with him and a life cleansed from all unrighteousness. Why don't you take that free gift right now? This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.